0: We're told that for 10 consecutive days in December of 1995, the NASA Hubble Space Telescope, orbiting far above the Earth's atmosphere, pointed its lens toward what seemed an uncluttered portion of the sky in the constellation Ursa Major. Astronomers narrowed the focus of the telescope to a tiny speck of black sky about the size of a dime 75 feet away, the resulting image, assembled from over 300 separate exposures, is remarkable. Jacob Needleman says, I was standing at the magazine rack in a bookstore when I first saw this photograph on the front of the National Geographic. Opening the magazine and eagerly reading the explanation of the photograph, I was struck with wonder. A nearly microscopic point in an apparently empty patch of the night sky was here shown to be a window onto hundreds of thousands of stars, maybe many certainly greater than our own sun, and like our sun, pouring out unimaginable streams of life-creating energy onto who knows what planetary worlds. I remember standing there for a moment with my eyes closed, sensing the mingling of impersonal joy and yearning that everyone sometimes experiences, looking up at a night sky strewn with millions of shining worlds. I put the magazine back and started to walk away, but after two or three steps, I stopped short. What had I actually seen? Something was not quite right. I turned around and went back to the magazine rack. My knees nearly gave way when I looked at the picture again. Could it really be? I opened the magazine again, and this time very attentively read the explanation of the photograph. These were not stars at all. These were galaxies, hundreds, thousands of galaxies, never before known or seen, each galaxy itself containing billions of suns, I suddenly became very quiet inside. The universe itself is vast in its extent and depth and its beauty, and according to many traditions, to know this universe, to know reality, it is necessary for a man or a woman to perceive it with more than the intellect alone. It is necessary to perceive it with the unique source of perception by which beauty and goodness can be perceived, with the depth and subtlety of the power of feeling. The power of feeling, not the violence and chaos of what we usually know of as our emotional reactivity. The power of feeling must be joined to the genius of the intellect in order to know the universe. That from philosopher Jacob Needleman in Parabola, 2004. And how well we remember that first great image of the Earth from space, the big blue marble, and that new view of all of us together without borders, boundaries, or divisions, and all that blue, the beauty of the Earth and its water. Poet Walt Whitman is someone who celebrates the earth, bringing head and heart and senses together in lines like these. The horizon's edge, the flying sea crow, the fragrance of salt marsh and shore mud, these became part of the child who went forth every day. And Sherry Nicholson reminds us that nature enters our experience in childhood in the form of place, this place is not so much made up of individual beings, though it is often that too, but is the world of childhood, a world of people, dwellings, fields, birds, streams, trees, hills, clouds. This childhood world is vivid, and it is largely lost to us as adults, though it contains bits of language embedded in it and the learning of language, and though it may be recreated in language later in life, that childhood world is not primarily a world of language. Its vividness and our loss of it are connected with the fact that it is not a world of words. We take the world of childhood in through all our senses as a place that contains smells, textures, warmth and coolness, as well as sights and sounds all together inside the environment that surrounds us. Words of Sherry Nicholson. And there are so many people who have not lost touch with the wonder and awe and beauty of those childhood experiences, and who are working to ensure that the present generation of children and their children, and generations of children to come, will be able to experience the world in its fullness. We find that individuals and organizations and communities are bringing together not just the very best technological and scientific resources, the fruit. Of the intellect, but also the wisdom of ancient traditions marshaling the heart, rooted in the bodily experiences of those who have preserved a way of life and viewing the world that has perhaps a wider and deeper understanding of who we are as humans and our responsibilities to each other. There is a heartening coming together of two people whom we are about to meet, friends in a mentoring relationship who represent organizations who are benefiting from this personal association in many transformative ways. They are Sid Jamison, retired lacrosse coach for Bucknell University in Lewisburg. Sid Jamison is Haudenosaunee of the Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy. And Joel Dunn, President and CEO of the Chesapeake Conservancy. They paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about the Susquehanna River and the Chesapeake Bay on Earth Day. Joel Dunn.
1: The Susquehanna River is one of the most beautiful rivers in the country and it stretches from Otsego, New York, Cooperstown, New York, all the way down to Havre de Grace in Maryland. It's about 49,000 miles of streams and waterways. It provides fresh water for 6.1 million people And it provides 50% of the fresh water that goes into the Chesapeake Bay estuary. So it is a vitally important river to the health of the Chesapeake Bay, for sure. But it's also a wonderful natural resource for the people of New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland.
0: Sid, you have a remarkable perspective on the river coming as you do always from the central Susquehanna Valley?
2: No. No, I actually uh, grew up outside of uh, Niagara Falls, New York.
0: When did the Susquehanna enter your life?
2: Susquehanna entered my life in 1964 when uh, I moved to uh, Lewisburg, Bucknell University, to begin my professional career there at the university, which is now 50 years uh, in retirement uh, phase right now. But I'll tell you a very interesting story about what really struck me was about 20 years ago, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I was sitting in my office and... My feet up on the desk and going through my daily mail, one of which was a large manila folder addressed to uh, to me. And inside of it, I found a letter from a gentleman by the name of Chief Waterman from the Onondaga Nation, which is uh, just south of Syracuse, New York. And in that, uh, Chief Waterman basically extended his best wishes to myself and appreciated what I was doing for the sport of lacrosse, the Creators' Game, it's the oldest Native American game in this country. But the major emphasis of his letter was to uh, ask me if I could uh, in some way contribute to helping the Susquehanna River become healthier. And coaching lacrosse and recruiting and teaching physical education and doing a lot of different things at the university, I was sitting in my chair thinking, okay, uh, but how is this going to fit into my daily routines and what am I really going to do? to try to do my part as a Native person, knowing that the Susquehanna River really wasn't very healthy. And so what goes around comes around, as they say. And uh, and here I am today, uh, having an opportunity to chit-chat with so many folks uh, through this broadcast, in a certain sense, about the history and culture and the uh, part that the Susquehanna River actually plays in the heritage and the culture of the Native people.
0: Tell us about the name of your people.
2: The English called us the Iroquois people, but we call ourselves, and we prefer to be called, the Haudenosaunee people, the Haudenosaunee nations, the Haudenosaunee people, or the Longhouse people. And so, from a historical perspective, children probably have seen long bark houses. Those are the homes of the Longhouse people.
0: As a young fellow, Joel, you set out to cross the country, and you had a sense of wanting to explore the land. Where did that impulse come from in your life?
1: Well, I think ever since I was a little kid, I loved nature and the outdoors and adventure. And I grew up actually in Massachusetts, right near um, Henry David Thoreau's Walden Pond, and so that was a big influence on me. Uh, As a restless youth, I traveled across the country with my sand County almanac in my back pocket, Aldo Leopold as one of my heroes. I really saw what was happening to the landscape across the country and was concerned about the impact of our footprint on uh, natural processes, wildlife, water quality, and uh, was worried about uh, sustainability and you know, I didn't think about it in those terms then. But um, I pursued a career in conservation and I've been very fortunate to have a series of wonderful mentors, one of them being Sid. Uh, Sid Jameson taught me uh, about the Haudenosaunee philosophy of a seven generations principle, to think about seven generations into the future, how our actions today will affect them. And that's about 140 years into the future. It's really difficult to plan that far ahead, but not impossible. It takes a lot of conscious effort and time, and it takes an ethic, really a strong, what I call a land ethic, to pay attention to natural law, which the Iroquois call natural law, which is, um, you know, that sort of an Aldo Leopold philosophy that conservation is a state of harmony between humans and the land and that we need to make decisions that achieve that state of harmony so that future generations have the same opportunities we've had. You see, I have a 10-month-old daughter. Her name's Harper, and she's beautiful. And what I want is for her to see the flight of a monarch butterfly or the flight of an osprey catching a fish over one of our great rivers in the Chesapeake. I want her to be able to run through an open field and up and climb a tree and enjoy all the wonderful things I have, had the opportunity to do out in nature. And the only way we're going to do that is that if we plan now for her future and her children's future.
0: So tell us about the seven generations and that way of viewing the world, which is so different from the world views
2: that are prevalent today. Yes, the uh, seven generations principle Really makes you step back and deeply think about the policies or decisions that the leadership is going to make relative to the future, the lives of the children 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 of the children. children. And when you think about that, you are much more thoughtful, uh, much more cautious, and more receptive to consensus which is a key element of the seven generations principle because nothing will move forward without that consensus. So it isn't two people making a decision for everyone. It's a large group of leaders that come together in consensus before policies can move forward.
1: You know, Aldo Leopold once said that a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community, and it's wrong when it tends otherwise.
2: It's almost a natural law of sorts. The Native people would say it's a spirituality, it's an ethical, moral and it is a consensus. That would be what the seven generations principle is founded upon. All things have a place and all things have a meaning. Okay? And each of us uh, are a part of all things that are beneath us, all things that are around us, and all things that are above us. So we're all a product of all of the experiences that have been placed upon us since time being. So it's a matter of of educating, if you will. It's a matter primarily, I think, for the youth, for the younger children to begin to try to appreciate and understand which, given the state of the environment today, the children are probably much more likely to be receptive to these issues and concepts than maybe they were... 15, 20 years ago when everything was just Katie barred the door, let's just get at this let's just get going Okay, so I think the younger kids today are much more interested and much more receptive. And
1: I, I agree with Sid, I also think that you have to give people the places to go to experience nature so that they learn to love it so that they vote for it, so that they donate to it so heck, they might even commit their careers to it, like I have. And that requires financial capital to protect those places, literally buy some of them. It requires a concerted effort on the part of conservation organizations, government agencies, private corporate community members to pool resources and find willing partners in those conservation efforts so that we protect the really special places that are symbols for the environment as a whole. The Susquehanna has many of those beautiful places that are inspiring and that will drive the imagination, the passions of our citizenry. And so it's very important that there are resources available through the, for example, the Keystone Mechanism here in the state of Pennsylvania or the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is a federally funded program, to protect places. But but beyond protecting those places, we need to make systematic changes uh, across the planning frameworks we use. So better data, improved high resolution data that allows us to plan 100 years into the future and see how would a parking lot here affect the water flow now and into the future. Um, how would the loss of this population of animals affect the overall population in the region, whether it's fish or birds or what have you. So to be able to think 140 years in the future, we now have the aid of wonderful technology and supercomputers and amazing cloud-based computing resources and satellites to be able to make really informed, educated decisions about what we want the world to look like 140 years from now. And it's like no other time in our history. So, we should take advantage of that. Just as big data for banks has been fortuitous and it's, it's worked for the healthcare industry, so too it should be applied to the environmental movement and conservation for the benefit of future generations.
2: Yeah, the, uh, the Native people, the Haudenosaunee people, are very supportive of what the Chesapeake Bay Conservancy is doing and the wonderful technology that is now available to make it more easily appreciated, if you will, through its mapping capabilities, uh, as well as the the research with the actual water itself. It, you know, it's... Uh, it's disturbing to to hear that the Susquehanna River is bubbling for some unknown reason. It's very disturbing to, to know that maybe 1% or less of the migrating fish that used to come up the Susquehanna River, particularly shad and eel, actually make it past the dams that are on the river, less than 1%. That's very disturbing. So the Native people, the Haudenosaunee people, are... Very interested, very concerned, and very interested in working with the uh, groups of people that have a uh, a real interest in conservation of not just the river, but the entire watershed. You know, the the work that the Conservancy has done with putting together the petroglyphs again, which were blasted out of the water, is a hugely significant thing to Native people. That was uh, below the uh, Conowingo Dam. And Joel and the Conservancy have uh, found a, a wonderful place to uh, put those petroglyphs back, which is in a rightful place.
1: W- one of the things the Haudenosaunee did was endorse the concept for expanding a water trail, a national water trail we helped establish in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, John Smith Chesapeake National Historic Trail, which traces the routes of exploration in the Chesapeake when John Smith, and his crew members first came here. Of course, there was a thriving Native American population here in a very complicated society that lived off the land in a sustainable manner. And John Smith learned a lot from them. He documented the environmental condition of the bay there and the cultural condition. There have been dramatic changes since that time. And it's interesting to juxtapose when the English first arrived in the Chesapeake Bay to today and what has happened. But, you know, recognizing that that is a chapter of history that we can't change right now, it's important to learn about our history and visualize how the Chesapeake's changed and what we want to do to improve the state of this watershed and the Susquehanna River in particular. You know, the rivers in the Chesapeake were highways. They were how people got around. They had their dugout canoes and other various mechanisms to move around, and the rivers are a crucial historic resource. In addition to environmental, they are a great way to tell a story about our history, and we surveyed a thousand people up and down the Susquehanna River, and they cared about a couple things. Wildlife habitat, water quality. Uh, They really respected the brand of the National Park Service, which is pretty interesting but they also were fascinated by Native American history and wanted to learn more. That was one of the key findings from our survey. So those concepts go together really well. They're a great way to educate our citizenry, inspire them to care about the environment, teach them some principles that are valuable to guiding our society to a sustainable future. And it's been a great partnership between the Haudenosaunee nations, and the Chesapeake Conservancy.
0: Tell us, Sid, about the confluence of the West Branch and the
2: main stem and what that has meant. Well, the Haudenosaunee nations maintain a unique spiritual, cultural, and historic relationship with the land. Uh, we do not consider ourselves as being one with the land, but we do consider ourselves to be stewards of the land we do not consider ourselves to own the land. So we're stewards. We do not own the land. The Susquehanna River Basin is perhaps the most important waterway in the development of this country. It was the New York State Thruway, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and Route 95 in Maryland. The Susquehanna River provided the means for an Oneida chief to make his way in 1744 to a meeting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, of the then state governors. That chief's message was later typeset by Benjamin Franklin, who, along with Samuel Adams and Thomas Jefferson, subsequently spent a great deal of time in Iroquois territory which later significantly influenced the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Eleven trading paths intersected near present-day Sunbury, Pennsylvania, the confluence of the west and north branches of the Susquehanna River, connecting the east coast to the center of North America at that time and the Great Lakes. It was a major route of trade and diplomacy among Indian nations, as well as an interaction between the Iroquois and the Euro-Americans culture. It's a very, very historical, significant place, which most people have no idea that it is such a historical place, and that the Susquehanna River itself is such a historical body of water.
0: And that's part of what you're doing. You're not only doing the... Technical work on the ground to make sure that we can preserve these places, but again, telling these stories.
2: Absolutely. That, you know, there's, there is a very old story in Iroquois territory which indicates that a boat of white people from Europe was seen off the coast of Virginia, and a runner came from Virginia to Onondaga to tell them that this boat was there. The Onondaga then sent a group of Native people to Virginia to investigate who this was, what is it, why are they, where are they from, different skin colors. The Native people boarded the boat, did not make any effort to communicate, but rather investigate. Left the boat, went back to Onondaga and reported that There was no issue other than these people were different. But that journey was and began down the Susquehanna River. So, again, I mean, this is a hugely significant body of water. Those
1: stories are vitally important to connect people with the resource. Uh, The technology is also really important to connect them, to drive... Demand from our citizenry to protect them, restore them, and take care of them for future generations. And um, we've built a great partnership in the Susquehanna with universities up and down the river. The Susquehanna Heartland Coalition of Universities uh, is working really closely with us. And we've actually crafted a project called Envision the Susquehanna, where we've been engaging citizens, community leaders, government officials in a vision for the future of the Susquehanna and the Chesapeake so that we can align the critical funding resources and political momentum that's needed to achieve that objective of the community. And it's been, it's been an interesting road. We've learned a lot and we're making some serious progress, I think.
0: We're talking with you, Joel Dunn, president and CEO of the Chesapeake Conservancy. And you, Sid Jameson of the Haudenosaunee Nation, retired from Bucknell University, about the Susquehanna River and the Chesapeake Bay. And the Conservancy has found a neat way to get us all
1: out onto the river. We actually did this really cool component of Envision the Susquehanna, where we took a boat down the entire length of the Susquehanna, shot 360-degree photos of every stretch of the river. So you can take a virtual tour of the Susquehanna River right now. If you go to our website, chesapeaconservancy.org slash apps, there's one for the Susquehanna. What's great about it is even if you can't get out to the Susquehanna, we can share the beauty of that resource with you so that you do have an appreciation for what a great river it is and that it's right in your backyard here. It is a national resource. It is a national treasure. And... We need to work together to try and protect this river. Joel, give us a status report on the Susquehanna and the Chesapeake. Where do we stand right now? Well, it's it's complicated. I want to be positive and reflect the amount of progress that the conservation community has made in the Susquehanna and the Chesapeake. So there are things that are going better. For example, in the Chesapeake, there's been an uptick in the amount of grasses that are available. And... The oyster harvests were up last year, and some of the fisheries' resources are doing well. But on the whole, there's 18 million people that live in this watershed, so the pressures on this resource continue to grow. Uh, Stormwater pollution uh, from urban communities is increasing. Non-point source pollution, runoff from farms and other lands, continues to be a major source of nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment. That nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment fuels the growth of algae in the river and in the Chesapeake Bay, which soaks up all the oxygen when it dies, and it creates these dead zones in the Chesapeake Bay, which are a major problem. The sources of problems in the Chesapeake, many of them originate from the land. So land management, stewardship of those lands, is essential for cleaning up the waterways. So thinking about when it rains and where that rainwater runs off to, what it runs through, what it's carrying, how to intervene in those flows, where to plant trees, to find willing landowners to partner with us to implement practices, they call best management practices in the right places where the technology shows us the best place to put them is a great next step in the evolution of the conservation movement. There's a number of chemical issues in the river, too, such as um, intersex fish, which are affected by medicines, which we're dumping into our waterways. And, you know, there's there's a number of problems, but an awareness, I believe, is growing about the beauty of the river, the needs of the river, and of the Chesapeake as a whole. One of the things that I fear is some of those most beautiful, special places are getting destroyed before we have the opportunity to harness the resources to protect them. And that troubles me because I want my daughter and other people in the future to have the opportunity to see those places. So uh, that's why those Keystone Fund and Land Water Conservation Fund are so important, because they help us protect those places.
0: Sometimes we get overwhelmed and think, what can I do? I'm just one person. What do you say?
2: I would uh, begin by telling a story of the teacher who instructs his class to go out into the field to find a certain flower and gives them a period of time to do that. And as the class begins to regather, having been out in the field, this one child hurriedly runs up to the teacher and presents this flower. And none of the other children were successful in finding this particular flower. And so the instructor, the teacher, begins to ask questions. And she finally gets to the real question, which is, having picked the flower, did you then try to find another one, which no one else was able to find? So how do you know that it may not have been the very last one in existence? And so I think for Native people, we tell stories about the significance of conservation rather than trying to present a book or trying to lecture or or whatever. We do it by stories. This grandfather is walking his grandson through a woods and he says to his grandson, there's a terrible, terrible fight going on between two wolves and one of the wolves is not going to survive. So they continue their journey through the woods, and at, as they enter this opening, the grandson turns to his grandfather and asks, but Grandpa, who who's winning? Who's going to win? And the grandfather looks at his grandson and he says, the one that you feed every day is going to win. So if we translate that to... What do we feed ourselves every day that would lead us to appreciate and value and want to be connected to, to this? Or why are the great white bears disappearing? Why can't we find the monarch butterfly? Why does the rain eat the leaves on the trees? Why does the air hurt our lungs? Why does the water make us sick? Why does a river catch on fire? So you, you can gain interest more readily if you draw those kinds of pictures for the kids today.
1: You can see why I love having Sid as a mentor. <laughs> I think Sid's stories are terrific um, for young folks and for people who are trying to answer that question of what can I do? I actually learned a lot. Sid told me a story once, and he he told me the Haudenosaunee philosophy that we're a part of what's above us, below us, and around us. And I've adopted that, and I've been looking at these rivers and the people that live near them as one. And so I look. At, I live on the Severn River, and so I've been inspiring my friends to take on the mantra that I am the Severn River, I am the Chesapeake, or... I am the Susquehanna, I am the Chesapeake. I actually did a little video where I had a doctor say that and uh, and one of my uh, Native American friends say it and I had a Park Service employee say it in front of the camera and it was really exciting. I think people are struggling with how to help and asking whether one person matters, the answer is, it all starts with you. The entire Susquehanna Restoration Movement And Chesapeake Bay Restoration and Protection Movement starts with you, the person that's listening. And there are a million ways you can help. You can manage your own land differently. You can vote for politicians that prioritize conservation and restoration. You can donate to your local charity or a group like ours, the Chesapeake Conservancy. You can get involved and volunteer in river cleanups and other activities in the community. You can demand results from our public agencies like the DCNR and the Department of Environment in Pennsylvania and the local agencies. Hold them to a high standard. Hold yourself to a high standard. And adopt the mantra that it is essential, it is a high ethic to take care of this place for future generations.
0: Joel Dunn, president and CEO of the Chesapeake Conservancy, Sid Jameson retired from Bucknell University in Lewisburg, where he was lacrosse coach for many years. We had a conversation with them in anticipation of Earth Day, speaking about the Susquehanna River and the Chesapeake Bay and its watershed. For more information on the web, chesapeakeconservancy.org, chesapeakeconservancy.org. As we heard, Sid Jameson spent much of his career at Bucknell University in Lewisburg. This Saturday, April 23rd at 11 in the morning, the Endless Mountains Heritage Region, Bucknell University and the Dietrich Theatre invite you to a showing of the documentary Stories of the Susquehanna Utopian Dreams at the Dietrich Theatre in Tunkhannock. Admission is free. During this 26-minute film, Bucknell University students discover and unfold the stories of Susquehanna River Valley communities. Utopian Dreams focuses on the history of two separate communities and their aspirations to create ideal societies. Joseph Priestley founded a society in the Northumberland County region that emphasized scientific and technological progress. The other community, the French Asylum, was founded in Bradford County by French aristocrats who were fleeing the French Revolution. Their perfect society was based in egalitarian thoughts and the idea that humankind should re-engage with nature. The film will be followed by a question-and-answer session with David Buck and Carly Dean from the Chesapeake Conservancy and Dr. Alfred Sewers, associate professor of English and affiliate faculty member in environmental studies at Bucknell University. For more information on the web, dot com the film, Utopian Dreams, a free screening tomorrow morning, Saturday at 11, April 23rd at the Dietrich Theater in Tuncanic. Utopian Dreams will be broadcast on WVIA-TV on Thursday, May 12th at 8.30 p.m., WVIA.org, WVIA.org.